Welcome, everyone. Welcome. We are in what is called traditionally a season of Advent. Um, and the, the dictionary defines, defines Advent as the arrival of a notable person or event. Now, some of you may know that um, Karin and I have opened a, a little Airbnb in the, back of our, in the back of our property. And so the idea of kind of people arriving and preparing for arrivals is, is something that we have been used to because we host a lot of people in our home, but the whole Airbnb thing has been a little different. Um, and the way in which we anticipate the arrival of Airbnb hosts is a little different to the way we anticipate the arrival of friends and family. I, I was just thinking about Kiona when she was away for six months um, and she was about to come home. I remember counting down the days. I remember making sure that everything was set, looking on flight tracker to make sure that her, that her plane was on time, making sure that everything was ready. Uh, when we first opened the Airbnb, Karen, as you know, has all these amazing, wonderful touches, and so she had this little welcome board to, you know, whoever our first guest was, and they were like little chocolates, and she left a little gift there, and she was so annoyed that the person didn't take the gift, that the person who arrived was not the person that we thought was arriving, that the reason why they said they were there is not the reason why they were there at all. And it just made Karen a little cynical. Now, those of you who know Karen, it takes a lot to make her cynical. But when I'm asking Airbnb people a question about staying at my place, I'm asking them two main questions. Who are you? So that I know that the person who's booked the Airbnb is actually the person that arrives. And secondly, what are you going to be doing? You know, because it gives me a little bit of an idea of the kind of person that's going to be here. Now, I know I'm cynical. People lie. You know? so, but it does give me at least something to wrap my mind around with regards to who that person is and why they are coming. And it changes the way we prepare for someone based on the relationship that we have with that person. Karen's family is coming just after Christmas, and it is a completely different thing. We are full of excitement and anticipation. We know exactly what we're going to receive. We're excited because we know who they are, and more excited because we're going to be doing things together. My heart is postured completely differently, and my preparation and anticipation is based on the relationship that I have with that person based on what that person is going to be doing and how I'm going to be engaged in that. And that's what the Advent season is about. So the Advent season is about making room. How many of you have put up uh, Christmas decorations? Okay, great. Now, how many of you had to move stuff around to, uh, okay, to, to do Christmas? It's about making room. And I would say my definition of Advent is, is that Advent is about making room mentally, spiritually, and even physically in the clutter of our lives, to allow a greater sense of connection and occasion as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, His first coming, and also long for and anticipate the second coming. Now, to be honest, this is a little weird for me, because as a preacher, I spend most of the year uh, encouraging Christ followers that Jesus is alive, He's tangible, He's steady, and He's present with you. I'm encouraging all of us to engage in rhythms into which we are able to um, understand that He is present and He is active and He is speaking. And, and so me telling you to anticipate the arrival of someone who is already here 
It sounds a little weird, and it is a little difficult. And as a preacher, it's the same kind of thing, like with Good Friday and Easter. You know, we, we all know the story. But just like Good Friday and Easter, this is a unique opportunity when our receptors are up and when we intentionally and thoughtfully submit to this liturgy, knowing that the culture is pushing us into all sorts of liturgy. During a time of Advent, we have the opportunity to look at the reality of our world and admit that it is dark. During a time of Advent, we have the opportunity to remember how the light of Christ burst in the darkness of our own lives and what that meant for us and how we long for the day when the whole world, past, present, and future, will be bathed in the light of the glorious Son of God who sits on the throne and who's made all things right. What kind of space are we making? If, if Advent is about the preparation of space or making space in this time, this is, this is a time where we need to become aware and reject the cultural liturgies that numb and distract our pain through consumerism. And we begin to stare at the darkness directly but with hope and faith. I was telling Neil this morning, you know, when you walk into the temple these days, it, it used to be five, six years ago, the temple was the mall, Right? Five, six years ago, you'd walk into the temple, and all of the stuff was designed. There were, there were liturgies designed in order to help you um, worship the person who is most important, and that, that is you. Now, the doorway to our cultural liturgies is, is through our phones. You know? All three of my girls have sent me their Christmas list on my phones with links to Amazon. You know what I mean? I really don't have to do a whole lot. But it is important for us to recognize that just as much as there is a liturgy into which we are being invited through biblically, there's also a cultural liturgy. And that cultural liturgy is hoping to distract us with earthly denial strategies rather than face up to our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. Harrison Warren says this, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache our deep desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness that we find in the meantime. By focusing our hearts on the first and second appearances of Jesus Christ, Advent is an opportunity to face up to the darkness in order to appreciate the light. Advent is a reminder that God broke into history once and the promise that He will do it again. What we're doing right now is part of Advent. It's part of preparing our hearts for the remembrance of Jesus coming in the context of a child. So this week we begin with a prequel. We've been in, Math in Matthew. We haven't been in Matthew. We've been in Luke. Uh, Luke, uh, we've been studying the life of Jesus, and we started with Jesus' baptism. And so we started in, with the fact that Jesus was already an adult, and now uh, we, we are participating in a prequel. And prequels, you know, some of them are good, some of them are not great. It's like one of the greatest prequels is Better Call Saul. So it's, it's the idea of what, like, what happened before Walt White came on the scene in terms of Breaking Bad. There's other ones, right? There's the Star Wars, uh, the Revenge of the Sith, right? No? But listen, this is the important thing. This is the whole point, right? Even though it wasn't good, what a prequel does is it doesn't add to the story because we know the story. And for most of us, even if you're not a Christ follower, for most, most of you, you know the, the, the Christmas story. What a prequel does is it takes some characters 
that were really very supporting characters in the main story. And what it does is it fills them out and it fleshes them out. And it, it helps you understand the context and the environment prior to the story and why that was important. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at, the, at, at two kind of supporting characters. We're going to be looking at Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are the parents of John the Baptist. And we're going to go back and look at the birth, the, the Annunciation and the birth of John the Baptist, which may seem a little insignificant in the story of Jesus and Jesus coming. But if we understand that the Bible is one unified story about Jesus, we'll understand why this makes sense. Right in the beginning, there was Adam and Eve, and all you guys are like, he's seriously not going to start there, right? <laughs> just, just be with me. It'll be 20 seconds. Adam and Eve had perfect communion with God in the garden. That communion was destroyed by sin. God made a promise that he would restore that communion. So God called Abraham. Uh, through Abraham, there was this covenant that God said, through all nations, uh, you would be blessed. And so we had the formation of Israel. Uh, after we had the formation of Israel, we had the captivity in Egypt, and then God brought Moses to be able to bring the Egyptians, I mean the Israelites, out of Egypt. And once they'd spend time in the desert, God gave them the law, and then there was a period during which uh, various prophets would arise and speak to the nation of Israel about the coming Messiah. And there was 400 years of silence, and then that silence was broken by what we call the first New Testament prophet, which was John the Baptist. See? You didn't need a panic, right? I know I missed a lot there, Travis, but for 30 seconds, I think it's pretty good, right? So here we go. Luke 1 verse 5 to 25, and I'm reading out of the Common English Bible. During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant. Some, uh, some translations say barren, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving as a priest before God because his priestly division was on duty. Following the customs of the priestly service, he was chosen by lottery to go into the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense. All the people who gathered to worship were praying outside during this hour of incense offering. An angel from the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and overcame, overcome with fear. The angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to your son, and you must name him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many people will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the Lord's eyes. He must not drink wine and liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? My wife and I are very old. I just want to say here, from someone who's startled and fearful to actually challenge an angel, I'm like, I don't know how he made that leap, right? <laughs> the angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and to bring this good news to you. Know this, what I've spoken will be true at the proper time. 
Other translation says, what God has spoken will come to pass at the proper time. But because you didn't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day these things happen. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered why he was in the sanctuary for such a long time. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he gestured to them and couldn't speak. When he completed the days of his priestly service, he returned home. Afterwards, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She kept to herself for five months, saying, This is the Lord's doing. He has shown favor to me by removing my disgrace among the people. Just as a short note, one of the things that we have been consistently saying as we've been studying Luke is that um, Luke has gone into um, great detail to help Theophilus, who, who is uh, the person that is receiving or initially, initially received the book of Luke, to understand that the story of Jesus didn't just start with Jesus, that it was connected to God's story of Israel right at the beginning. And so he, he goes into a lot of detail connecting people and places, connecting the law and the prophets to be able to show that Jesus is the fulfillment. But as I read this, uh, and as I was praying this week, I, I really believed in this section that there were three invitations for us for our time of preparation. I think the first invitation is to identify our personal pain and anticipation for change. Identify our personal pain. Verse 6, it says, They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of the Lord's command. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant. They were both very old. We know in those days, because as, as Jason preached so well last week, we know in those days that the idea of any kind of physical ailment or the inability to do something was often seen as a judgment. Uh, it was seen as the fact that there was obviously something wrong or sinful in your life, and because there was something wrong and sinful in your life, you were, for example, last week, lame, therefore unable to participate in, in Abraham's banquet. And oftentimes in the context of barrenness, there was a sense in which people would say that there was something wrong with you, which is why you were, ba why you were barren. Now, Luke goes into great detail to help us understand that this is not the case. Uh, they were both righteous before God. They were blameless in their observance of the law. And so we, we understand that this was not a judgment, and we know that it was taken away because in verse 25, she says, This is the Lord's doing. He has shown favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. I want to say it's possible that as we look at our own lives, that even though we know and we understand that the time of trial and suffering that we are going through has nothing to do with God being capricious. In other words, God, God saying, you did something wrong, and so therefore you're going to experience this difficult thing. Sometimes we do understand that the way other people view that may not be the case. And the way other people may view the circumstances of our lives may be in the sense of like, well, what did you do? What did you do to be in this position? You must have done something wrong. And in this kind of situation, as, as we look and as we wait during Advent, one of the things I want to invite us to is to actually say, okay, what, what is this thing that is painful for me? What area of barrenness is there in my life? What area um, is unproductive? Where do I feel disgraced? Where have I been praying and praying and praying and nothing seems to change? Where have I just given up even praying and given up God asking to help? 
And where do I need the light of God to invade? Because as, as Elizabeth and Zechariah were praying, there was a sense in which we know that they had consistently prayed. When, and when the angel answers and says, this is going to happen, how many of us are like, I don't know about that. I mean, he's been praying for so long. He has an angel visitation. And the angel says to him, this thing that you've been praying for, your wife is going to get pregnant. And he wants to know details? Like how? Because I'm really old? I'm pretty sure Gabriel's like, I'm not going to get into that with you right now, you know? (laughs) I think the second invitation is a call to be able to recognize the corporate pain that the world is in. Verse 16 It says that he will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord equipped with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. He will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. And he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is what John's ministry was going to be. There's a deep sense of pain, shame, and disgrace for the entire Israelite nation. There were promises consistently given by God that you are God's chosen race, that through you all nations will be blessed. And consistently, they seem to be under the foot of one oppressor or another. There is the sense in which not only is the shame and disgrace of Zechariah and Elizabeth going to be taken away, but the birth of John will mean that the shame and disgrace of the whole nation of Israel will be taken away. There's this this sense of of corporately, this understanding that Israel is waiting and longing with anticipation for the Messiah. And our world, too, is waiting and longing to be released from these kinds of pains. Do we actually just sit down and spend some time thinking about the corporate pain that some of our neighbors, co-workers, some of our family, some of the people around us are going through? Probably not. You know why? Why? Because it's those people over the last year and a half that have caused us much pain, shame, and disgrace. And in a sense, we, 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 we are, we've become kind of myopic in our focus. We've been wounded and hurt by the people around us, which actually means that we are not in a space to be able to silence our souls and say, God, won't you give me eyes to be able to see the public sense of disgrace, shame, and pain that people are experiencing Right now. Unfortunately, over the last 18 months, we've been shaped into an even stronger us versus them scenario where grace for others has begun to fade. I want to show you this little video of what I'm talking about. Thank you. 
So I, uh, I understand the irony, okay? I am aware that a multi-billion dollar company is telling us to be kind to my gifts, but, but, I'm aware. However, I guess the question that I was asking myself as I was watching that is, I wonder how many people would call me kind. I mean, I know what a lot of people call me, but, <laughs> but kindness and gentleness and lowliness and humility was the mark of Jesus' ministry. We know there was strength. We know there was authority. We know there was power. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. But there's a sense in which what Advent does is give us the opportunity to, to, to look around. What, what that woman did, which I found so powerful, is she just had open eyes and open heart. You know, as, as the radio said, you know, uh, cases of anxiety are, are growing amongst young adults. And she could have been like, yeah, well, it's because of this and that and all sorts of other reasons. But she looked and she said, actually, I can do something little to help this young girl with her anxiety. And, and I guess my, my invitation during this season is to actually say, God, won't you open my eyes? This isn't about going and buying a gift through Amazon, please. This is about actually opening my eyes to see the people that are around me, whether they are part of my tribe or not, that actually are going through the same corporate pain. Because one of the difficulties is this. Jesus will not be fully seen in his glory through the church if all we focus on is tribal issues. Tribal issues meaning issues that are specific with regards to the church. If, if, if there is a group of people that have been so impacted by the light that are showing light into the world regardless of how that world res responds, then we will be known as children of the light, which is what we are supposed to be doing. Thirdly, there's an invitation to silence ourselves. So firstly, let's, let's look internally, let's look at our, at our personal pain and invite Jesus into that pain. Let's recognize that there is a corporate pain on there, and even if we are in pain, you know, that older woman was alone. We, we don't know whether she was a widow, we don't know whether she was abandoned, we don't know what the story was, but she didn't use that as an excuse to not be engaged in the life of someone else. And I want to say, for me, this is an, a difficult thing, to intentionally silence myself. In verse 18, the Zechariah, uh, Zechariah, the angel says to him, because you don't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day these things happen. I cannot imagine what it was like to not be able to speak for nine months while your old wife is pregnant, and people are asking questions about what is happening. And you cannot speak. And so people are saying, he won't say anything. There must be something wrong. Can you imagine? Then Mary arrives, and we'll cover that next week, and she's also pregnant. People must be talking now, okay? So here's a super old auntie, and she's pregnant, and here's this really young girl, and she's pregnant. Zechariah, what's happening? And he's like, got nothing. You know, you've got nothing. Now, I know that in this context, Zechariah's silence was a judgment. It was a judgment of unbelief. What Gabriel has said to him, because you didn't understand, uh, you aren't going to be able to speak. But 
I feel like there's an invitation in this passage for us to silence the noise in our souls and in our minds and to begin to ask God to walk into that silence because the inability to talk isn't just a sense of verbal silence, but it gives a container for God to speak. Now, we've spoken about this before. Why are we so afraid of silence? Because we are afraid of what we might hear. We're afraid of what would be exposed in our own hearts. We're afraid that not only did I think that I dealt with this pain, but I actually just pushed it down and I didn't invite Jesus to deal with this pain. There's a whole lot of unforgiveness in my heart that I have. There's a whole lot of unbelief in my heart that I have. So the the idea of silence is this container for God to encourage, but also to expose. Let's be silent for a moment. Just close your eyes. What is your mind telling you? It's too late. I can't change. Things will always be this way. But how is this possible? I'm too old, I'm too young. I'm too much. I'm not enough. When Zechariah challenges the angel, Gabriel's response is so powerful. He says, What God has spoken will come to pass. At the proper time. What God has spoken will come to pass at the proper time. What has God spoken? John is born now and Zechariah is able to speak. I cannot imagine what that must have been like. He's able to speak. We know he writes on a tablet. What are we going to name him? He writes on a tablet John. Once he writes on the tablet John, there's the sense in which in which the, the realization that this actually is from God, that he's going to be obedient to what the, the angel is saying. He writes John down, and then he speaks to his son. He prophesies over his son. And this is what he says in verse 76. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. You will tell people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins, Because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us on the path of peace. John did come in the spirit of Elijah. And he came to prepare not only the hearts of Israel, but this was brand new. He came to prepare the hearts of the nations. We remember when John was baptizing in the Jordan, he was baptizing tax collectors. He was baptizing soldiers. He was baptizing Jewish people. He was baptizing Pharisees that would, be, that, that would want to be baptized. There was this sense of a wholeness and completeness that John was busy prophesying. We know that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah because Jesus confirmed it later on. When Jesus is saying to his disciples, I tell you that Elijah has already come, but they did not know him. They did whatever they wanted to him in the same way that the human one is also going to suffer 
at their hands. He was talking about himself. Then all the disciples realized that he was talking about John the Baptist. Why is it important to connect Elijah and John the Baptist from a historical perspective? It's because Elijah was a prophet that caused a spiritual awakening in a time when Israel was being led by a very bad king. And so he caused this spiritual awakening. John is now preparing the hearts of people to receive the message of Jesus. John is creating a spiritual thirst, not only for Israel, but for all the nations to be able to respond. Prophets throughout the Old Testament have done the same thing. And Jesus has always said, and particularly in Luke, that I have come to fulfill what? The law and the prophets. That's what he's always said. Elijah was a prophet that prophesied during a bad king. There's another prophet called Zephaniah who prophesied during a good king's reign. And, and Josiah was a good king who, who tore down idols and who, who wanted to restore the worship of God in the temple of God. And so let's read from Zephaniah. Band, you can come up. If God says that whatever I have spoken will come to pass at the proper time, God has been speaking the reality of this, not at the Annunciation, which is the, the, the announcement of Jesus' birth, not even at His birth. This has been spoken by prophets long, long ago. Peter tells us that prophets were speaking of Jesus. They longed to see the reality of what this meant, but they never were able to. So what is God's promise now and in the future? If if in our time of silence, if in our time of pondering our own pain and corporate pain, the joy that we, get look, that, we be, that we are able to look to is the promise of God. What is that promise? Zephaniah 3, verse 10 to 17. From beyond the river, rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now that's important because there was a dispersion, but also there's a sense of broadness with regards to not only Israel, being part of the promise of God. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Does this sound like Jesus? They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel... They shall do no injustice, they shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall be afraid. This is probably part, a part that we know. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken the judgments against you away. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall not ever feel evil again. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hand grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What has already happened in the incarnation? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Shame has been removed. 
whatever shame you have felt because of the sin perpetrated on you, because of the damage other people had done to you, that shame has been removed by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whatever judgment was against you because of sin that you committed, whatever pride you lived in has been taken away because of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your enemies, he has cleared away your enemies, the enemies of sin, of Satan, and the, the, the greatest enemy of death has been taken away because of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Lord is in your midst. What do we know about the Christmas story in the name of Jesus? What is he called? Emmanuel. What does it mean? God with us. The Lord is in your midst. What is yet to happen? Well, in that verse, we know that verse 13 is yet to happen. That there shall be no injustice. That there will be no speaking of lies. That there will be no deceit. That everyone will graze and lie down and no one will be afraid. And so we live in the already of not yet, of, of understanding that these things have happened to us and are happening, and yet the fullness of it is still to happen. The measure of perfection is still to occur when Jesus comes back a second time. Until then, as we look at our broken world and our broken selves, we can say this, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one of Israel. He will save you. He will rejoice over you. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. Until we see him a second time, we revel in the reality that we have been saved by his grace. We rejoice that there is nothing to fear because sin, Satan, and death have been removed. And we know that he will quiet us with his love. The lyrics of the song... I want to read them, and then I just want us to respond in song. God with us, the promise has yet to be. This is the one the prophets were longing to see. In the darkness a blazing light, to the hungry the words of life. His kingdom now is near for those with ears to hear. Let's prepare him room. Let's prepare him room. Oh, our hearts are as busy as Bethlehem. Hear him knock. Don't say there's no room in the inn. Through the cradle, cross, and grave, see the love of God displayed. Now he's risen, now he reigns. Praise the name above all names. Let's use the season to intentionally look in. Let's use the season to intentionally look out. But most of all, let's look, use the season to look up and see the glory of our God and King. Let's prepare him room. Star shine on the virgin for. 